All right, we're back again. Episode 30 of Cap and Trade, the big 3-0. Got a good friend from Houston Sports Talk Radio 610, Seth Payne, on here with us. Seth, how you doing tonight, sir? I'm, I'm good. I'm sorry I'm late. I was trying to connect through my computer, and apparently you, you can't do you that. Can't. So just uh, got to use your yeah. phone. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm good. I'm uh, I'm excited. I, I feel a sense of enthusiasm emanating from the fan base that I don't think I've felt in a while from the Texans. So uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, no, definitely. You see a lot of optimism, a lot of, um, you know, I think step one was getting past the whole Watson situation. And then next step was getting the assets and getting the excitement. And now, putting those assets out there and using them in the draft and, and taking that next step forward towards the next page. And I think, like you said, the optimism is out there. The fans are out there. I think a lot of people have ex- accepted the path and, and are excited what Nick Casario is doing and, and what Lovey Smith is doing and, you know, just ready to turn that whole page back and get it all behind us and start moving forward. And you can definitely see the excitement out there. I mean, it's, there was so many fans, me, myself included, that were just, crushed by this organization so many times it was hard not to hard to get excited but i think a lot of people are past that stage now yeah it's um you know there's it's fun it's fun to it's fun to watch a gm make moves that maybe you disagree with but at least you can see the logic behind it like versus just complete head scratching inane stuff that you just can't quite figure out and that's where I think I've been with Nick Casario. There's like with any general manager, you're going to disagree with some things. You're going to, you're going to love other things. Um, but it's just, it's a, it's, it's an actual professional run in the organization. And it, and it, it did feel that way that until you could get out from underneath the whole Deshaun Watson scenario, I don't think anything was going to feel right or normal. And it was easy to kind of judge everything in the harshest light until then. And, um, I like without, I don't want to, you know, get too, uh, you know, too, too naive about it or anything, but it is, uh, it is like a big weight's been lifted. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's the thing for me is like, I'm now I'm like cautiously optimistic moving forward and excited where this team might be going. And, you know, this past weekend was in my mind, you know, last year was kind of like year zero. So this is year one in my opinion. And this past weekend, the draft was another, another step in that process. So, you know, we'll just start there with the draft, just kind of overall feelings about the draft, this draft class and, you know, high level view, 30,000 foot view of it. Um, I, you know, I think my biggest takeaway would be that just from a personal standpoint, I was pleasantly surprised that a lot of the thoughts and beliefs I had about the way the Texans would operate um, just from a team building perspective were completely wrong. And, and the biggest thing I think is that I just, I figured that Lovey Smith, um, you know, is who he is. He's been pretty vocal about how you're going to, you got to build with pass rushers and build from the front up. And a lot of that sounds a whole lot like, okay, he's guy plans to run as much, as much of a Tampa two type of defense as possible in the modern NFL. Um, and he'd never really, a Lovey Smith team had never focused heavily on drafting defensive backs and they go and they take two of their first three picks as defensive backs. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to read too much into it because some of that might simply be the talent they saw in the draft, but Lovey had never taken 
a cornerback first in uh, in the in the first round in any team he'd ever been in, including as a as a position coach with Tony Dungy. Um, so to take Derek Singley number three overall, it it feels a little bit to me like it's like it's like Lovey Smith had been like fighting a war with muskets forever and finally conceded and acknowledged that uh, it's pretty good to have a rifle too that rifles are rifles can be very good and Derek Stingley and the ability to pay, play man defense really really well hopefully um is you're 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 shooting with rifles now and you can do a lot more with a defense when you have guys like that yeah and he he came out i think today there was you know i think there was a quote i saw from one of the one of the nfl websites that maybe nfl.com that uh they're ready to put they're ready to put him out on an island as their number one quarterback and face face the number one wide receivers so it seems like, you know, Lovey is all in on it. And it's interesting what you're bringing up about Lovey. And I, I had kind of wondered how the draft was going to be handled because I didn't know with the whole situation of how Lovey came to be the head coach, if that was going to be leveraged into some picks that were more his way, but it turned out not to be that way. I think this was a very strong collaborative effort between both head coach and GM. I don't think this was a pure Nick Casario draft and I don't think this was a pure Lovey Smith draft I, you know definitely when we see a lack of of pass rushers drafted but I just it was good to see all together I'm you know I have no complaints I'm not a big draft Nick kind of guy I don't dig into draft profiles or anything like that but just from the outside looking in and my non-expert view on the on the draft class it it's exciting I you know they addressed a few areas I, I definitely like the the Kenyon Green pick and you know, going with the guards, you know, there's a lot of people that kind of think that might have been a little bit high of a pick. It seems like Casario didn't want to get too cute with tr- trying to trade out, trade down again from 15 and missing on his guy, assuming, you know, assuming Green was the one that he was targeting. And definitely no no complaints with, you know, the second round's pick with Petre and, and John Mechie. You know, kind of read up on him a little bit today. And it just, it didn't, you know, the team had so many roster needs. They obviously didn't have to reach for any certain specific need or position. It was just, you know, I hate to say it, best player available. It was just kind of how the board felt, fell to them. Nick obviously made what five trades this week, including yeah. one prior to the draft. I had set the over under two and a half. So I was way off on that one. And, you know, he moved up aggressively, you know, three times, four times and, you know, just utilizing those six round picks that he had accumulated over time, instead of using those on veterans, he was using those for moving up the draft. So definitely no complaints from me on how he navigated through the draft, the players that came out of the draft. Now it's just the next step of coaching them up and, and uh, seeing how they see how they perform on, on, on that investment. Yeah. And, and I think that the one thing that I've really appreciated about Nick throughout this spring as he's talked about the draft a couple things really one is i mean i he is very very open about talking about why they did or did not trade um you know kind of what was going on on draft day uh, to, to a degree that i i have never seen that with a gm out of a team i've been on or with any of the gms here in in houston so um, that's just interesting to, to, to have that level of transparency, you know, and he's not giving away everything or anything, but he's, he's pretty open about like, well, we, you know, thought we could move back, but we, 
no, didn't get any calls. Um, or like you said, when they, they, they thought about trading back from 15 and they just didn't, uh, uh, or when they thought about trading back up and they just didn't, didn't work out. Um, I, I like that. I do think also that he's, I like that he's so open about talking about how, uh, you know, <laughs> he did it last week with uh, when he was bringing up Garrett Wallow and the trade that they ended up, the, the trade that they executed last year where they ended up taking Garrett Wallow, he was very clear in saying, like, look, I love Garrett Wallow, but that wasn't that specific player. It was just that spot in the draft. Um, where And he wants to try to position himself where he where there's multiple players available because they don't know exactly what other teams are going to do, which guys are going to be there, but they want to increase their chances by having kind of a pool of player at these various specific parts in the draft um, without getting too attached to any one of them. I, I just really like that. I think there's, there's a level of humility he has after being in the game for 20 years and seeing the good, seeing the bad, seeing what happens with, with some of the guys that you feel really passionate about that don't work out and vice versa, that um, I just I, I really respect his approach to it, that it's it's like a it's an analytical approach, but that's very much grounded in the like the nuts and bolts of how a football team actually works. Yes, yeah, so he, he definitely is very good about not going pure coach slash team speak explaining what happened and why they did what they did without pulling the curtain back too much and giving, you know, giving something away or speaking out of turn or something like that. What, who do you think when there was a lot of rumors, right? When draft was about to start that they were talking about moving up from 13, who do you think that was for? Or do you, I haven't really thought about it too hard. I just, I don't know if it was around the whole Hayden, Aiden Hutchison thing potentially fallen and that which it turned out Detroit had no intentions of passing up on him, but kind of made me wonder if he fell to three, if that, you know, if they took well, him and then snuck back up for Stingley later or what was going on there. So, so they were thinking the rumor was that they were going to trade up from 13. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't Jordan Davis and it wasn't Kyle Hamilton. No. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> um, I, I wonder if it was Garrett Wilson, maybe like, cause Garrett Wilson, Garrett Wilson had been projected to them a couple times, and at that point, people thought were, were people projecting Garrett Wilson to go a little bit lower than thirteen, but they thought the Texans might reach on him. Yeah, I think he was slight. He was coming up the board, and then this past like week and a half, it was like you know, and Albert Beer mentioned it in his one of his columns that you know a name to watch out for with Houston is is Garrett Wilson, and then I think his name kept going up. So that you might be right. I think his name kept sneaking up the board, and if they had to move up, that'd have been the guy and and the type of wide receiver that Garrett Wilson is is pretty similar to John Minchie. So that kind of, that kind of makes sense. That pretty well. Lined yeah. Up. <clears throat> yeah. That's um, that would, that would have been intriguing. I guess the other one would have been potentially cave on Thibodeau. Um, I, I just, I would have been surprised if they took Thibodeau. Yeah. Honestly, I heard they I, I was, in on him too much. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, like, cause it, I, I know a lot of people were, upset that they didn't focus on edge rushers in this draft and again i think that was more of a product of look the guys that they probably really liked um just weren't there i i thought that they might be in on jermaine johnson um i was a little bit surprised that i was really surprised that jermaine johnson fell as as far as he did it was good to me i felt a little bit validated that daniel jeremiah seemed 
genuinely surprised too. And he, uh, he, as he said, he asked a bunch of scouts, like, what did I miss? Was I wrong on him? And they said, that ah, just looked like teams kind of, teams kind of knew who they wanted. And that, that entire first round seemed to be kind of a crapshoot in terms of where guys actual power rankings were with different teams. So, um, I, I get that. The only other thought would have been if they had planned on taking Derek Stingley, but then also hope to move up for one of the offensive tackles, you know, uh, either Jaquani or Neil. Um, I don't, I don't think they would have taken Charles Cross just because they've talked. Yeah. Yeah. And they've talked so much about, uh, about running the ball. And it's just such a progression there or a projection there. So when we had talked a couple weeks ago about arranging this, you had said you wanted to talk about your electron cloud theory. Oh, <laughs> you still remember that? Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was one of those things. I I started. Uh, I, Sean and I were just gabbing about something on the show, and I and I started going off into some tangent about uh, electron electron cloud probability theory uh, or electron cloud probabilities, and, and I was trying to make an analogy with with Nick Wright's um, or Nick Casario's draft strategy compared to like the old school model of like the electrons orbiting around an atom. And then you learn, you, you, you learn in like high school physics that that's actually not the way it is, that there's an electron probability field. And like that, that's kind of the dividing line where you either realize, okay, uh, maybe physics isn't for me. I kind of like the idea of just the, 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 the electron orbiting around the nucleus. Mm-hmm. So I, and I do think that he really, when he talks about moving around for clusters of players and when he looks at individual players, I think he, I, either by personality or by, uh, by, by forcing himself to, I think he tries not to fall in love with one specific player. And, and he looks at these guys like when, when he's drafting a guy 13th overall, I think he's very much thinking, okay, this guy has a 57% chance of being a, a long-term starter. And if I trade a little back, back further, then we've got like a 47% chance of being a long-term starter. And, and, and it's kind of a, it's there, it, it grounds him with a sense of humility. And I think probably in his mind keeps him from taking undue risks. Yes, and he's very much, as he's said multiple times, about trying to minimize risk, mitigate risk, measure the risk. You know, he's he seemed to examine risk in every in every way possible, and so yeah, that that aligns with that's a pretty that's a pretty interesting analogy. That makes sense, and that's pretty good. <laughs> like that. It's a, I figured I figured your audience might be a little bit more receptive to that than like our than our huge audience in the morning. So uh, you're uh, the, like the. You're, you're, you've got a you've got a more refined bunch that follows you. All right. So, I wanted to get your take on on Kenyon Green uh, as the offensive lineman. I I kind of read up a little bit on him. I mainly two draft guides that I have to reference are you know Dane Brugler, Dane Bugler with the Athletic and and the PFF board. What what were your overall thoughts on Kenyon Green there? I think that Kenyon Green. You know, I, I people that listen to me in the morning know that um, I'm not a huge fan of Trevor Penning uh, because Trevor Penning, the offensive tackle that ended up going to the Saints, is this big, strong dude who played at an FCS school and just bullied smaller defensive linemen and, and did it with a whole lot of holding penalties. Um, and I think, honestly, at a higher level, like if you'd run those same plays 
against bigger guys, he would have gotten called for even more holding penalties. I think sometimes at the lower level, it just looked like he was physically dominating him and he got away with some holds. Kenyon Green is like what Trevor Penning wants to be, which is a guy that is genuinely strong enough and plays with good enough knee bend that I think he, he was able to, in the SEC, out-physical guys a lot of the time. Um, he did, though, kind of like Trevor Penning at times, he, he got a little too handsy. He gets he he kind of loops outside with his hands and bear hugs guys, um, which you can get away with if you also move your feet. That's a little bit. That's like the the technique that James Campen likes to teach is where you you latch on from the outside. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. And they don't call it holding as long as you as long as you bring your feet. You can get away with it. Um, Kenyon Green does a really good job of it sometimes, but there's other times where he kind of doesn't bring his feet. So. That's the that's the big challenge for him. But the big thing that I really like about him for a guy as big as he is, um, and I guess I, I kind of started with a negative just because it was fresh in my mind as I was saying that, um, I, I don't worry about it because he has a level of refinement to his game that you also don't usually see at that level. And, and the part that really sticks out to me um, is two things, really. One is knee bend. So on the physical side of things, he plays with really good knee bend. For a big guy, and, and again, a lot of times guys that are kind of bullies in college get away without playing with great knee bend and great pad level. He, he does it. He uses all his leg strength by playing with good knee bend. The other thing that he does is he really does a great job of staying patient and diagnosing stunts and blitzes and games in front of him. So you don't see him doing that thing that, I, for whatever reason, with Bill O'Brien, the Texans' offensive line used to be real jumpy this way. Guys would guys would kind of just latch on to somebody crossing in front of their face, and they'd whiff on a lot of games and stunts. Um, I think that I, I think that Kenyon's ahead of his ahead of his age on that so i think that's going to be a that that speaks well to maybe his ability to adapt to the nfl game because he's not he's not the fastest foot athlete in 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 all the land or anything um and sometimes with those guys they've got a tendency to panic a little bit and lunge and leap um i think he's gonna i think he's not gonna have to deal with that as much as a lot of rookies that's pretty interesting a lot of that lines up with exactly what i've what I read today, and that's that's good to have some some alignment on on what the read is out there. And that was the biggest thing is like he has a, he has a wide hand wide hand base. He's got very strong hands, but he can get a little wide with his hands, which leads to bear hugs, flexible, strong base. So yeah, that all that aligns with what everybody else is reading on him. So that's that's exciting oh, to see. Yeah, and you know, one more thing about yeah. the hand stuff too is that I I. I don't want to you know make complete excuses for him or anything but playing all over the offensive line like that i think that tends to sometimes make guys into more grabbers because they are a little bit uncomfortable and then you know like i just said he's he's pretty patient especially when he's a guard at diagnosing that stuff um but sometimes when you get out of your comfort zone that's when the the technique lacks a little bit so hopefully Hopefully they don't go complete Xavier's to a Philo on him and move them all over the place with the Texans. Just let him sit at, sit at one spot and get I his technique not. done. I hope not. That I mean, we've seen it. We saw it with Howard. We saw it with Sula Philo. We saw it with Lonnie Johnson. I mean, it. I mean, in Kenyon Green, uh, Kenyon, I keep calling him Kenyon Green, and I don't. That is his name, so that's good. 
<laughs> Kenyon Brown, Kenyon Green. Oh, I keep getting it mixed up. But the point that's is, all right. I've been saying I've been saying Nick Wright for Nick Casario all week, and I have no idea why. So, so uh, he was scheduled to start at right tackle this past year for for the Aggies, but due to injuries, ended up at guard. So you know he he played all over the place due to injuries, and let's hope that Houston sees him as a guard and leaves him there and lets him just refine his his work there. I mean, he should slide in right there at left guard next to Tunsil, and that should be a pretty solid left side for this year. Another one of the draft picks, Jalen Petrie, John McClain. That's John, that's, he's like the greatest all-time player of all time, according to John McClain. <laughs> <laughs> coming out of Baylor, but I think he's going he's gonna to be an interesting one. I, you know, it looks like he's kind of a hybrid type safety yeah. that, you know, he can play, you know, play the the small linebacker role, big safety, played that star role in, in David Randa's defense, played a little bit of slot. He's got the shift quickness. You know, he's just kind of, it almost reminds me of kind of like Tyron Matthew of the way he plays that, that strong safety kind of all over the place safety position. Is that kind of your read on him? Yeah, and, and I think this is another one, too, where you talk about the modernization of some of the things that Lovey Smith wants to do. You know, um, when it comes to, okay, Lovey playing zone two, I think, I think that transitions, especially now with Derek Stingley, into, okay, look, he likes playing zone, um, but cover three, uh, when you've got a guy like Derek Stingley that can potentially lock a guy down on the outside, cover three can play a lot like man in some respects. And, and I think Stingley allows them to do a lot more of that, maybe more aggressively. But then when you're also playing cover two, um, the kind of the modernization of the Tampa two is that those guys that used to be linebackers that could cover really need to be safeties that can play the run, you know, or, or a freakishly talented linebacker. And I think that it's just it's harder to find those freakishly talented linebackers. So I think having guys like Jalen Petrie probably really appeals to Lovey because he can keep some of his old concepts, um, but then also be a little bit more flexible and modernized. The other thing too is that Lovey Smith is the he's the slot corner coach. So I had like Lovey will actually get to spend a lot of time with Jalen Petrie, and that's uh, the, the the one thing about Jalen Petrie is that when he made that transition from linebacker to safety with the new coaching staff, he really just took in everything they gave him about how to diagnose and you know, how to study tendencies, how to do all that stuff. So a lot of these plays you watch on Jalen Petrie's highlight reel, it's not just football instinct or anything. It's him really having become a student of the game and, and understanding exactly you know, where to fit and, and what the tendencies are. So that's um, sometimes you, you want to project that on, onto an intelligent guy. If a guy's smart in college, you hope he figures that out in the NFL. Um, I think with Jalen Petrie, he's already well on his way. And, and Lovey probably is really looking forward to working with him when he's going to, when he, when he does play sometimes in that capacity as the slot corner. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably the one player. I mean, Stingley, and, you know, I'm, I'm excited for those first rounders, but Petrie and how they use him is the, probably the one of the more exciting pieces of this draft to see how he's utilized, how he performs in those different roles, and just excited to see him all over the field. And then one other player I wanted to get your take on, which this one I'm 
very excited about. I have a lot of high hopes out of John Mechie. You know, I'd, you know, he's coming back from the ACL. By by based on reports prior to the draft, he had already started to run, and he's looking at like a July return. So it looks like there's a really good chance that we may not see him start on NFI, but actually be active and ready to go towards the end of training camp, maybe the start of preseason. And everything I read on him is he's a very refined route runner, has a very, very good release, doesn't let the corners get into his numbers. He can read and diagnose defenses. He can manipulate the coverage. And I've been we've been talking about this for on here for probably the last month and a half of what kind of slot corner Pep Hamilton was going to be looking for. And it's clear what he was looking for is he was looking for the guy that can make those options work, make the decisions work based on the coverage that he sees in front of him. He can be a number two wide receiver. He's obviously going to be behind Cooks and and Collins. But if he's projecting out as, as a starting slot wide receiver based on what I'm reading here, it, it's very interesting, very exciting. It it They're almost projecting him to be kind of be that – that safety blanket for a quarterback, which is what Davis Mills so so much needs this year. Yeah, I, and I honestly, the more <laughs> the more I looked at John Mechie, and then the more I read about him, um, there's there's almost a side to me that it wonders if Nick Casario is looking at him almost like, okay, this is this is the this is who Julian Edelman would have been if he had played receiver in college and or you know played receiver in high school and and gone to college and especially if he'd gone to Alabama or something like he can play inside he can play outside um, but mostly mostly he looks like he'd be a really good slot who can also play on the outside but he's just competitive as hell and just just the the kid he moved from canada to the u.s at the age of 14 just because he wanted to because he wanted to play in the nfl he lived in three different countries before he was seven i mean yeah yeah background yeah and um in the one story his brother tells a story about when he was 14 and he had transferred to this private school in maryland i think it was or somewhere down there or over there he he had a he he had a chest contusion and they discovered an enlarged heart he had to sit out for like a year and his brother said that he just was like would not take it easy like was just so ultra focused on becoming a college football player that the the kid even at the age of 14 or 15 um was just that laser focused so i and and there really started to be a theme here with a lot of these guys i think especially as you got further down from jalen petrie down once he got out of the first round um of kind of like a scrappiness like a high character guy. And, and we've looked, we've, we've heard the phrase smart, tough, dependable <laughs> to the point where it became a dirty phrase almost. Um, Nick, Nick Casario, look, they, they both got that in New England, Bill O'Brien and Nick Casario. And Casario, Casario, I think is aware that it became kind of a dirty phrase amongst the fan base. So he shies away from it. But I heard Des King reference it uh, in his press for the other day. So they're still talking about it. I think, I think the difference hopefully is that, I think Casario is pretty good at identifying like actual football smarts and football toughness and football character, because that's a like that's a really common theme with the, with all of these guys from Patreon down. Not not to say that it's not with Derek Stingley or Kenyon Green, but those guys are the more 
Um, you know, they've, they've got the benefit of the doubt in a lot of ways. They're the blue chippers where a lot of these other guys, I think they, they were looking specifically for scrappy guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that sounds about right on Casario. I, I could see him having that mentality probably still goes by that mentality, but he's, he's fully aware of it and it's not going to just throw it out there hard and heavy like it was before. Yeah. So. I want to get your take, and you may not have a take on this or not. I'm not sure. So, on on the draft on the draft value charts, you know, I've got like I've got like eight of them, and there's three that I usually reference the most, and they're kind of all over the place. You know, the Jimmy Johnson, the old antiquated chart, but most everybody uses that when they're talking on the phones. That's the point chart that they're referencing, but every team has their own custom system. I mean, do do you? It looks like. Just looking at the, I looked at all the trades today, and trading up always comes with a premium. It just depends on what what kind of premium you're coming up for. You know, Carolina paid a a bigger premium coming up for Matt Corral versus Minnesota and Detroit making swaps. And yeah, do I mean is there? Do you look at those charts at all? Is that something that interests <laughs> you? I mean, is I, Stat Set Stat Nurse Seth get look at that at all? I've been trying to, and honestly, like sometimes. Um, I botch it. So I've been very careful about actually talking about it. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Um, but I, you know what I, the one I found interesting, cause like you said, everybody has kind of their own version. Belichick has talked about it and said that, you know, pretty much everybody's using a close to the same currency conversion now on that chart, except for when you get to the first round, cause the first round gets all blown out of proportion. But I thought it was interesting <laughs> that when the, uh, when the Patriots made that trade with the Texans right before the draft, what was it? It was the Texans got the fifth yeah, for the for the uh, Patriots sixth and seventh. Yeah, it was one seventy for one eighty three two hundred five. Yeah, in that one, they using the draft tech chart, which is made by a a, a Patriots blogger, yeah, Rich Hall, uh, Rich Hill. Yeah, it came to like almost like a dead even trade yeah. right yeah it wasn't even which, it wasn't even worth the seventh on the net value of it yep yeah so it, which made me feel like okay the patriots blogger probably has a pretty good feel for what casario and belichick are using you know or like what belichick has been using so i don't know if that one's did the um i saw that the i saw that the trade down from 13 to 15 made sense for the Texans, right? But then after that, I kind of lost track, and it looked like it was kind of lopsided uh, uh, away from the Texans for a lot of the other ones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always going to be that premium when you're when you're coming up in the draft, especially in the first round. And I think the net value on that Philly-Houston trade from 13 back to 15 was almost like a net second-round value. But, you know, it's that's the net value of it, but it, – yeah, also, they didn't get a third round out of that. They got what – or they get one-third and two-fourths or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it gave him more ammunition to, to move up later later in, later in the draft. So it, it kind of worked out at the end. But, yeah, it was definitely like a net to value on that. And it kind of proportions as you go down later in the draft. You're like moving up the first round, you're going to give up a ton of capital. Second round, a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less coming on down. So – I'm I'm trying to study it. I'm still trying to figure out the best way to measure it and present it in written form in the newsletter <laughs> so that it makes sense but I'm don't like lose people's 
attention and be like, oh, this is boring <laughs> as heck seeing all this. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to present it. But I am looking it, at it. it you to get know your what take I on it. Well, you know what I found? It seems like just from response from listeners and on Twitter and everything, it, 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 there's a heavy amount of skepticism about it. And I was forever like, I saw like, ah, these draft charts are BS and everything. And then you start to realize that, okay, the way it does operate in the NFL is that they do, like, there's kind of a currency converter here. And a fifth, sixth, seventh rounder sometimes seems kind of inconsequential, but they, they can't, especially the sixth and seventh rounders, but they can use those as currency in various ways. Um, and I think that, that that part of it's interesting. I, I, I've just noticed that for the most part, people uh, never want to accept a value. When you say, especially if somebody's trading like a third rounder for a couple of fifths or a fifth and a sixth or something, the, the person that's losing the third rounder never thinks it's a good deal. Like even if it's lopsided in favor of them, um, it just doesn't seem like that third rounder could possibly be made up for by uh, a couple of sixths and a seventh or something like that. But I, I, I guess knowing that the GMs themselves do operate that way and it is kind of common currency um i've I've started to get a little bit more into it yeah no it's it's fun to look at it it's still you know at the end of the day it's you're just trying to it's all like casario would say it's all about positioning trying to make sure you're in the right spot to get the player that you're looking for the or the type of player you're looking for the group of player you're looking for so that that's at the end of the day you know values value like he says, mitigate risk and just try to move around and position yourself appropriately. And you, you know, know what? Uh, you, you know what's been interesting to me, Troy, is this is, is like with each progressive year, it seems like the um, the consensus power rankings are starting to do a pretty good job of kind of forecasting good players, especially at the top uh, the top of the draft. And, you know, there are always rumors that some teams maybe are, you know, forgoing their scouts and more so using, uh, you know, kind of using analytical uh, analysis of the mock drafts and, and power ranks and, and oh, things yeah. like and that. You, and you heard, and Casario told you all that. They look at it. They look yeah. at the mock draft. And it was in like the Buff- one of the Buffalo Bills videos. Somebody screen grabbed and one of the, one of the player personnel or somebody had their uh, PFF ultimate a uh, uh, website open the ultimate which is above what you and i use the elite package that's what all the teams use but the buffalo bills had the pff uh program opened up during the draft during the draft video yeah yeah and that's what you know i pff is funny because the thing they're most used for like on a massive level is probably the player grades and everybody misuses those player grades <laughs> like but that's but but that's what but that's what they're most criticized for too, are those grades, um, which which are widely misused by people. But and PFF brings a little bit of that on themselves too, because they'll rank players based on the grades and everything. But yeah, the the actual the actual data that they do is pretty fascinating. Yeah, there's like two to me. There's like two branches to PFF. There's the 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 grade side, which caters to the fan to the fan base to the casual fan. It's an easy reference point. It you know they don't have to do any work they can just look at the number and get a, a get their own gauge of the player and then there's the copious amounts of data that they provide to the teams to all 32 teams now that uh, teams rarely use the player grade itself it's more the coverage stats the line uh, yeah. snaps the 
I mean, there's a, a wealth of information in that, in that ultimate package that they get. And well, so that's, that's it. You know, that's just something that is neat. And, you know, Hey, Texans are, are hiring in the, in the data analytic on, not the data analytics group. They're called the decision science group now. That's right. Decision science. Yeah. yeah. So, well, you know, and, and that's like, uh, you know, some of the, when they do like the regression analysis and everything, and they look at guys like Trayvon Walker, like the PFF model, like their analytical model that judges all the edge rushers and everything was very, very, very down on Trayvon Walker. And you just wonder, okay, is, are the, are the Jaguars like, are they using data like that and just ignoring it? Cause they feel like Trayvon Walker is that exception or are they just not using it at all? Um, Cause I think that that's where Trayvon Walker was such an interesting case study. I think, I think a lot of the more analytically minded teams might have said like, look, yeah, he's got these physical tools, but man, he, it would be a unicorn and I'm not going to spend the number one overall pick on a unicorn working out as a pass rusher when like all this other data shows that he probably won't work out. Yeah. And I, if my memory serves me correct, um, his son, the owner's son, Tony Khan, who I think's the head oh, yeah. of football. He's huge in analytics. From, yeah, yeah. Um, so especially it, with their it, soccer club side, and yeah. So it's that's an interesting, interesting case study to keep a lookout for because it's you know I Balky's more of an old school GM, kind of runs to his own tune, and how that's going to cope up with with Tony Khan and that side of the organization will be interesting to see this year and see how that draft. See how the draft works out. See how their free agency spending, because you know Jaguars do their two or three year cycle of heavy amount of free agent spending, and pissed off the market with a Christian Kirk contract and caused a, <laughs> caused. I mean, you saw it. It's still into the draft where you know six or seven wide receivers go in the first draft. You got people like Hollywood Brown going for first round picks, and you know AJ Brown twenty five million dollars a year. It's just the wide receiver market's just gotten crazy crazy out of control and they did yeah and then and then like spending heavily on off-ball linebackers too in, yeah. the, in the draft yeah. like it's which i like like i've got a uh I, that's the old school side of me it's like yeah look like uh, they, they bolstered the front seven i'm skeptical of trayvon walker as a, as a number one overall pick just because he's never shown like real pass rush ability but he is a beast versus the run. So like the old, uh, the old caveman in me just thinks like, yeah, go, go hit people with those guys. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah. And speaking of the decision science group, uh, Weller Ross, I guess left last year. Cause I saw he joined PFF re- uh, recently according to his LinkedIn profile. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. He, and then I talked to somebody over there. He said he left last year. I didn't even realize he had left. So we took his, keep uh, that stuff. Uh, his, yeah. They, yeah, took his uh, fourth grade or fourth grade fourth down aggressiveness paper with him. I guess he was uh, the one hope for Bill O'Brien. That yeah, was, uh, and it never well, panned out. It never. <laughs> he was out. A, O'Brien was aggressive on fourth down, but it, a lot of that was had to do with Deshaun Watson. I think more than the analytics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, before we get to a couple questions, before we close it out tonight, we will have a, a pretty hard stop at ten o'clock, folks. So if I, if we don't get to you, I apologize. One question that I, I, this was kind of more of a fun question. So if you were ever to get like Nick Casario lubed up, which I <laughs> highly doubt he drinks, but if for some reason, what do you think would come out of his mouth? Like, I, it's interesting. I always wonder, like, would he just be just talking mess about everybody? Would he just be the same as he is now? 
would he just spill the guts on everything? Uh, though, yeah, that's like anything about the Patriots would always be super interesting because he was there for all of it. Yeah. You know, like he was there for. I think he came in in Belichick's second year, so as a young guy, he got to watch. He got to watch Tom Brady ascend. He got to see get lived through like each and every scandal. Um, and so that part would be really cool. I think the, the biggest thing that I always am intrigued by that I'd love to talk to those Patriots guys about is just, there are always these reports that Belichick or, and, or the coaches there never were really all that impressed with Tom Brady and that they felt like they could have done the same thing with like any of the top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL um, it, which who knows, like, I just love to know how much of that tr- is true. I'm sure, I'm sure that's the extreme version of it. Um, but I do think that I do think there's something that happens in teams like that, where people get so tired of hearing one or two people get all the credit that they kind of almost start wanting to, you know, you know either claim credit for themselves or say there's more to it than that, you know? And, and, and the thing I, the only thing I could say is a, like as a player or as from talking to defensive coordinators about playing against Tom Brady is that there, there are lots of players that have the same information fed to them about tendencies and everything, but nobody is better at diagnosing exactly what you're doing before the play than Tom Brady. So that's the, like, that's the part I'd love to get Nick Casario's perspective on is just, just like how much, how much do you really think you can replicate of that Patriots experience just because of the system, the scheme, the philosophy and everything, and how much of it was really just Tom Brady and Bill Belichick being geniuses in their own right. Yeah. I, I would have a completely different set of questions, but that's what was uh, your, uh, what, what's your, Oh, I would question? just would, I would just want to know like the inner workings that, you know, the day to day, like, it, these would be like serious into the weeds questions for a general manager, but and a lot of stuff he wouldn't answer, but it would be, be fun for me to just pick his brain and get to know like what it is on a day to day. What, like what reports does he get every day? Like, does he get a cap report every day? Like my Excel, my spreadsheets and stuff. Like I have like a main page that has like a huge overview with like three year out projections and all this stuff. Is that the same kind of thing? Do they project three years out? How do they factor in, you know, moves, what are they projecting out for contracts? What are they, what information are they using when they're doing contract projections on their internal players? It would just, it would be serious into the weed stuff, but yeah, I would just love to know some of that inner working stuff of, you know, just basic operations of the front office and, and how they utilize the data they have and how they use that information to, to make decisions, you know, now with GPS tracking, you know, and not so much needing just a, a 40 yard time from the combine, but looking at his GPS tracking from college ball versus, you know, first quarter versus fourth quarter and, you know, and how they just pull all that data together and grade these players and how they, you know, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but well, no, so no. Much I would love to pick his brain about. I think, I think especially when you talk about the GPS data and stuff like that, because like, look, it's been ever since like I came into the league in 1997 and scouts and coaches would tell you that they don't care about 40 times. And then you always end up hearing them talk about 40 times, which, and everybody, like, it's one of those things. Everybody knows that they're bunk, that they don't tell you much at all. And yet they can't ignore them. You know, like their mind always goes back to them to the point where, 
you know, I know some teams and coaches and GMs will just ban talking about 40 times because they know that they're too heavily weighted in people's minds. But especially now with that GPS data available, do they even do they even care about they, they care about the combine data because they can compare that specifically to other prospects and everything. Yeah, exactly. So it's a yeah. it's a data point. But I wonder I wonder when it comes to really evaluating the player himself, if if they just weight the GPS data that much more heavily, because it seems like it'd be so much more informative. Yeah, that like, how do they measure free agents? I mean, they look into like success rates when the player's on the field versus off the field and how they how they project out contracts for those kind of players to determine what, what they're going to spend in free agency, who they're going to target, just all that stuff would just blow my mind if I could have two hours of, of unedited, you know, one-on-one, not going to talk about it. I'll sign an NDA. I don't care. Let's talk kind of conversation. <laughs> so that would always be fun for me. And one, one last thing before we try to squeeze in one question before we shut it down, you know, Trent, you know, we got rookie mini camp, I think next week or the week after that and training. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. I would say uh, Thomas Booker for one, the defensive tackle, defensive lineman. I didn't. I for some reason I thought in my mind I had him as like two ninety. I didn't realize he's three hundred five. He's he's put together. He doesn't move like really, a three hundred five guy. No, he's got really thick legs. Like he is. <laughs> I did. He's hear that. got massive legs. Um, and he's another guy too. Like when you see him in an interview, it, it, like if you if you saw him in an interview, he'd be like, okay, yeah, so that's the guy that went to Stanford, right? Um, he's really it, like not just intelligent but very thoughtful, um, and it, and it kind of goes to a theme I think with a lot of these uh, second round and later guys that that Casario drafted this year. They they seem like a really like they seem like the kind of bunch that like doesn't just love football. They can tell you exactly why they love football. And, and like, I like that about them. And, and Thomas Booker reminds me a little bit of Roy Lopez in just that he looks, he's got a very good sense of how to use his hands and um, how to shed blocks and how to, how to read, diagnose, and then time when to make the play in the run game um so he's got a very good knack and feel for the game so you know beyond that okay how good of a pass rusher is he going to be all of that you just got to watch him versus actual nfl guys but uh as far as interior defensive linemen go so far i would say between roy lopez and i think what thomas booker looks like i think casario's got a pretty good feel for like (laughs) like figuring out which one of these guys kind of have an instinct for it um, and have the technique and have worked the technique for it because I uh, he, Booker looks a lot like that, so I'm excited to watch him. Yeah, I think John Mechie, if he's healthy or whenever he starts getting out there, is one that I want to watch just to see if his technical skills, you know, I mean, I obviously don't have the eye for for technical skills per se, but I think a lot of the eye tests can be, be had there, and I'm just very curious to see where he's at, where he's at in his rehab, and, and if he's looking to make it back and if he is out there at full speed you know i definitely want to see him working working the field and how it works for out for him um what was your chest analogy 
So we didn't get oh, to that. Oh, it was just that, you know, I, I was saying I don't play chess, but I've, you know, I've, I've, between reading and watching movies and everything about chess players and chess philosophy, like you, you, there's always that that balance between like all this data and all this education and learning how to play the game and strategy and openings and mid game and all this stuff. Um, but because there's just so many different possibilities on a chessboard, at some point it's got to go back to instinct, you know? And I think for a guy like Casario or some of these more analytically minded GMs, when they have all this information data that's available to them now, at some point, you got to just you got to step away from it and 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 go with an informed decision which ultimately maybe is based on instinct or gut or something but it's got to be i get stressed out thinking about it like i get stressed out thinking about when you know there's all this data out there but ultimately you've got you've got over 50 guys on a football team that are going to contribute and matter and you just you're never going to be able to break it down and predict with great accuracy so it, at some point you got to go back to instinct what what you got any books that you're reading right now? Uh, I you know what I just started. I I was like on a nonfiction uh, jaunt for a long time. So the book that I had just read, let me see if I can find it in my Kindle here. It was actually it was called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin, who was a chess player. The he was actually the kid that. Um, Searching for Bobby Fischer was based on that oh, movie. Okay. Yeah, it was like that. twenty years. Ago. Yeah. Well, he like he he burnt out on chess when he was in his early twenties, and he ended up becoming like a world champion martial artist in some kind of Taiwanese Tai Chi fighting or something. Um, but so so that's really interesting. So then I so I so I, uh, I I had like seven nonfictions in a row. So now I'm reading Shogun by uh, James Clavell, which is a historical fiction. Oh, okay. All right, we'll get one question here before we close it down. V's been uh, patiently waiting since the very beginning. V, go ahead and take yourself off mute, sir. What's going on? Hello, V. Twitter's not still, being, Twitter's still not being muted. very nice to everybody. It's showing him not muted, but I don't know. Huh. See, now it shows him muted. Hmm. Maybe Twitter's not being very nice to everybody tonight. <laughs> um, I think we pretty much hit. I had a question about how we went from a hundred million cap space down to fifty-eight million. So. Oh yeah, how did we? <laughs> yeah, I heard Sean say it the other morning. He's like a hundred million. I was like, no, Sean, no. Um, that's not real. Um, I mean, because they only had like twenty-two players under contract for next year right? and until you get to that 50 you know that 50 second contract your your top 51 contracts are gonna hit the cap and so as as all these you know the the brandon cooks extension which was like a 20 something million dollar cap hit for next year that ate into it the uh, few other free agent signings here recently ate into it and then all these all these uh draft picks they're all hitting the cap next year all of them are inside the top 51 because I think they're now up to like 38 or 42. And once the undrafted guys, it'll get over to 50. But it's it's not going to be near the number that people think it's going to be. <laughs> well, it's going to settle down, and it'll work itself out. And it, it, I think like once the draft class is signed and all that, it'll be like 33, 35 next year. But once they make some moves and things like and adjust things, 
it'll it'll still be a big number next year. It's just not going to be a hundred million. You know, this is um, this has been an interesting part, the uh, thing for me to watch too with Casario, and and kind of try to learn and figure out exactly what his strategy is. Uh, Mike Mike Meltzer and I disagree on this uh, on what his strategy should have been over the last couple of years because mm-hmm. I, I I think Mike wants as many draft picks and rookie free agents that, as possible. That is correct. Um, I personally, I started off feeling that way, uh, especially when I just wanted him to clear as much cap space as possible after the success of his rookie class last year, in which was a very, very small rookie class and where they were signing all these one year veteran contracts and two year veteran contracts. Um, you know, I was skeptical of it at first, but after watching the success of those guys, um, and watch them adapt to and adjust to the NFL, those rookies. I, I see what Casario is doing, and he's talked about it more openly this year, is that he wants to focus as much energy and resources as possible into, into developing these players. And there's kind of a tipping point, and there's a balance that you have to find between having a bunch of jackass rookies on your roster to the point where all of a sudden – you can't execute a play. Um, you know, you have too many rookies on a roster. You can't execute a play. You can't compete in games. They're not learning exactly like the finer points of playing in the NFL. And you really like, I'll be honest with you. I had some really great coaches in the NFL, but uh, the veteran players that were on my team when I was a younger player probably mattered just as much, if not more in, in terms of, really learning how to play defensive line and like what, what you, what matters, what doesn't matter, like how you prepare, like, you know, what, what the real tells are in an offense, all that stuff. Um, so I think I, I really like, I'm a, I'm a fan of this strategy. I think that the analogy I'd make with this is that when Jeff Luno was with the Cardinals, you know, they, they came up with a lot of great new ways to evaluate talent, but then after a while, everybody else figured it out. And Luno realized, okay, everybody else is using these methods where we're going to pour our efforts into player development and and find our edge that way. And I think that Casario um, is kind of of that mind that in the NFL, especially, you'd be, you'd be surprised. There are a lot of coaches, especially these days, that uh, are much more about wanting to be X's and O geniuses and don't actually understand how to coach the game and don't understand technique as well as they should. Uh, so I think Casario very much wants to focus on that player development side of things. And to do that, you can't have, you can't have 27 rookies on the team because um, everything just falls apart too quickly. So that part so far is starting to reap some benefits, I think. Um, hopefully we see more of it this year, but I, I like it as an experiment. I like watching it, and I and maybe maybe I'm completely wrong on that, but that's my read based on what I see and what Casario has said. Yeah, and I think it's a good blend. I I, I honestly thought, like, dating back to prior to last year, I thought he was going to do that. I thought it was going to be gut the roster, have a million rookies, big undrafted rookie class, and he did the complete opposite and had – like three undrafted rookies and, and yeah. five drafted rookies. So it's kind of a back to a more of a blend this year. It's a more, not normal, but a more classic type of roster building. Not so much as, as going through the draft, but still building through the draft and then using veterans to, to plug the gaps, plug the holes. And 
speaking of like you were just talking about with veteran players, you know, that the Mario Addison sighting, I think has kind of fallen that line. You know, he came from Buffalo, the def- I think the defensive line coach is from Buffalo and, and had yeah, Addison he was, uh, or at least he spent a couple years with him. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that kind of just a, a, one of those coaches on the field kind of thing, but still can be, you know, based on his numbers last year, still can be productive despite being 34, 35 years old. And, you know, that just kind of goes in line with that. So I'm with oh, you. It's, yeah. yeah. But plus we, uh, yeah. And then if we're going to totally, hopefully maybe go the Jeff Luno, Daryl Morey route, uh, we're, we're signing international players between John Mechie's kind of an international player, even though he played in the U S and in Alabama, but that, uh, the Nigerian yep. kid that they, um, or is he a Canadian citizen? No, English, English citizen now. Yeah. But he's from Nigeria, went to England, played in Germany. Um, only started playing football in his twenties. Like that, that's uh, that's that's the kind of stuff where yeah, I don't. That guy specifically probably won't work out. But I like the strategy and the thinking. And a lot of times those guys are free roster spots anyway. Yeah, that one's going to be an unofficial, or it won't count towards the ninety man. So they'll actually have ninety one players at camp, and if he finds his way to the practice squad, they can carry 11 practice squad guys instead of 10 and have him as a free free uh, practice squad player spot as well. So it's good to see Houston get a piece of that action this year. It's always fun to, to see that kind of those kind of players getting a shot out there. So definitely looking forward to that. And with that, I think we've about covered all the talking points I had. We're a minute over, minute over the time I wanted to get you out of here. So doing pretty good. Um, Seth, I appreciate the time, sir. Um, it was a good, very good conversation tonight. Very, very in depth. I enjoyed that. Oh no, me too, man. No, you're awesome. You're uh, you're you're one of the best follows out there. So, I, and I appreciate you're like our um, you're you're like a free research uh, analyst for our show too. <laughs> no we problem. usually we usually we put out the bat signal when we realize like okay, we don't know what we're talking about here. Yeah, we're gonna somebody ask Troy. I'll not, yeah, I'll just text Sean right in the middle of the show. I'm like. No, no. <laughs> then he'll text me like three hours later. Oh, did I say that? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. So do you, do you text Sean more than me when it comes to stuff like that? Oh, well, now I'm going to start bugging you. The person who, the person that I, I'm amazed at is Landry, how he can, he will literally text me back while he's talking on air yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, that is amazing juggling skills. Um, no, but yeah, no, I appreciate the time, sir. I, I know you got to get up early and, uh, you know, have a good rest of your week. And, uh, I hope, hopefully I'll see you out at camp again this year. I'll, hopefully Omar will let me come back again, which I'm, I'm expecting him to. And hopefully I can get some days off and make it out there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you were, uh, you caused a ruckus or anything. I think you'd be invited back. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. Uh, well, with that, I appreciate it, sir. Um, yeah, I think the next newsletter from cap and trades coming out into this week hopefully a little more cover a little bit what we talked about tonight and a few other things a few of the uh the signings that have been going down and the Lonnie Johnson trade and things like that it's just kind of a weekly review of this time around so for those that subscribe to that we'll get it out this week and I'll get it posted up on social media when it's done and uh again Seth I appreciate it and with that everybody we'll have a good night and then we'll shut it down thank you hey thanks bud yep yeah.